I've got some feedback, Joe. You do? Yeah. Feedback about what? Um, our fantastic guest last week, Anthony Kreis, who's over at uh, SPIA on the yeah. job market. Yep. Boy, someone ought to give that guy a job. Agreed. Uh, he was really good. Uh, it was a great episode. And uh, the, a lot of, you know, the um, SPIA tweeted it out and, oh, and we cool. got picked up by uh, SCOTUS blog. Yeah, that was great. Um, they re- referenced it. Um, and uh, so there's some feedback generated by this. So um, Straight Grandmother on Twitter oh. tweets to say, I listened to the whole program and offer you a suggestion. Let the guests talk more. <laughs> Fascinating. Yeah. I, I can't say I disagree with that. No, we should. You know, look, I, I'm the first to admit this show would be better if I didn't talk at all. Oh, I don't agree with that. Well, you, you don't have to. I know. I think straight grandmother would agree with me. She might. <laughs> she might. She might. So that, that's, that's my bit of feedback. Okay. Um, I saw, do you have anything? I saw no such um, tweets. Mm-hmm. Uh, Two students followed your injunction, your insistent and repeated injunction that someone walk up to me and say that they enjoyed the podcast and my participation in it. Right. So we can I, do better, UGA Law. You are you are at least you have you have at least that much uh, you know, heft and and uh that much gravitas. I, you, you you drive at least that much obedient behavior. I think what I did, Joe, is I gave people permission to approach you you know it's kind of like seeing a celebrity in a restaurant oh my and you're like oh my god i can't believe this person's there it's at least like seeing a celebrity who eats way too much in a restaurant i can't believe they're there and but you know i don't want to bother them i want to play this cool i'm Mm. just eating i'm eating they're eating just kind of both eating together in the restaurant and so you you feel like you gave them uh the thumbs up on approaching that person exactly Exactly. Well, whatever they were feeling uh, 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 about why they did it, I was delighted that they said <laughs> that they enjoyed the program. <laughs> I but, won't and be that's cool. I won't be satisfied until your day is nothing but walking down the hallway <laughs> and then hearing <laughs> so hearing, inappropriate, and then, and then hearing behind you, kind of whispering. Did you? Do you know who that was? <laughs> that's, that's that's Joe. That's Joe. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's 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 a good that's good progress. There's. Other big news that about this week. Okay. Joe, did you know that this is going to be our last show, our last episode? I did not know that. Is it truly our last episode? Yeah, this is going to be our... I, I think it is, because um, I, I don't know why we would keep, why we would, uh, keep recording when um, co-host Dolly Lithwick has started her own podcast. That's true. Let's just pack it in. Well, Let's just roll it up and pack it in. There's a, there is a serious question, what value we add in a world where she has uh, a delightful podcast. Let me just say this, in all seriousness. Anybody who listens to this show would love that show. Of course. Right? I mean, uh, it, it's tight. It, um, it, uh, uh, you know, it's, um, she's brilliant. She's brilliant. Got good guests, good production values. Yeah. It's in a studio. Yeah. It's fantastic. You, you got to listen to that. It's fantastic. Uh, I, I read and listen to anything that she does. Absolutely. I do too. Uh, On principle. I was trying to come up with a list of reasons why people might continue listening to this show despite the existence of that show, Joe. It will intensify their enjoyment of her show. Well, that's right. There's because no reason this one is about. not as good. So you will, you will, you will <laughs> definitely feel when you're listening to her, you'll get that much more pleasure and joy from it right. because you will not be listening to us. You want to keep the contrast vivid in right. your mind. So every week, I think you listen to us right. and then you listen to her. 
Well, <laughs> I, I think that's right. And, and you, that, you heighten the enjoyment of her program. I, I, have a, I have a mental list of reasons. Okay. Should we do that before we get to our guest? Let's. Fantastic guest this week. Totally great. Boy, that was a good discussion, wasn't it? Oh, my it? gosh. You guys, you guys don't know what you're in for. It's really, really real, good. You know, challenge, real brain crunchy stuff, and I think totally worth it. And I think straight grandmother will be happy because we, we, you know, he yes. talked, he talked a, a good bit of it and was very instructive. In, and, indeed, uh, indeed, on an issue Much that, that I know almost nothing about. Right. So this was really great. Um, but in terms of this list, uh, w- one reason you might still listen to our show is that you're not a big fan of theme music mm. in podcasts. Yeah, because we don't have any. We, she's got it now. I, I, I'll say this in an earlier incarnation of this show. This is the one that we did for my uh, that legal was not theory an students. incarnation of the show. Um, well, that was it was a podcast experience that we had for a limited audience. It was not general release. I. It was a prequel. It was a prequel. It was, it, they were good prequels too. No Jar Jar. Uh, <laughs> oh and, my! And we had the, we cut in the theme music for that and everything, but that's because we didn't have to worry about copyright and all that. And I just we cut in yeah. interesting songs, and it was you know it would and just early kind of fade on in. before we were doing this show actively, I I asked about music and stuff. Now, and, you, and you correctly yeah, persuaded me I'd that like that to, was not, uh, oh, really? not needed. You think I was correct now? I do believe you were correct. Right, so so my my vision of, of the show is not to have any of that stuff. Yes, I think in that way we're a different kind of show than we are. than than what Dolly has and. Um, that ours is just boom conversation. That's all it is. Boom. You tune in, boom, we're talking. We finish talking. You wait till next week. Bam. And, um, and I really like that. Now we could easily cut in some some theme music. I, I don't think we should. I and mean, you and I have talked about this. I thought you were against me on this. Uh, initially, I was. Oh, you're no longer. I thought we talked about it last week, and you were still against me last week. Really? Uh, maybe I'm crazy, Joe. I, I don't might think be crazy. I was against it last week. I think oh, we boy. did. I think you noted it about her show. Yeah, but I don't think I said anything suggesting I thought we were approaching it wrong. No. Yeah i I don't think we'd be able to agree on the music. That that's almost certainly true. Yeah, because you don't like very good music. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, you know the other thing, cool thing that she does is they cut in um, audio from the oral arguments. Yeah, like I do sometimes in class. That was it, very it really, well used. It was, wasn't it? Very great. well used. Yeah. Very well done. Yeah. She talked to uh, uh, Oral Argument alum Tom Goldstein in the first episode. That's true. He's been a guest here first, of course. And uh, someone we've not had before, Doug Laycock, right? Yeah. Who uh, was re- that was a great interview. It was a great interview. Terrific question. Right, so we're going to link it up. People he was should- very interesting. Yeah. Great show. Any- anybody listens to this show, you'd, you'd love that show. Absolutely. Um, we hope you will continue to listen to this show. <laughs> it's, it's called Amicus at Slate. Yeah. Uh, well, she pronounces it Amicus. I might have pronounced it amicus, but mm-hmm. it's it's spelled A M I C U S. So if you're using your Overcast podcast app, you could mm-hmm. just subscribe right. there. It's just amicus, A M I C U S. I agree with you. It's amicus. I think. Um, should we write in about this? No. I let's you know mm-hmm. you got to make your own kind of music. She's got to decide what she wants. Hmm. Hmm. Well, that's not the way I, I that that I view our listeners. Listeners, you tell us what you want. Tell tell us what we're doing wrong, like straight grandmother did. Yeah, she said you. Were she right. said, "Yeah, you guys shut up. Let the guests talk." Yeah. Speaking of which, we've got a great guest. No other feedback. <laughs> no, Nothing I don't else? have any other feedback. See, this is the other thing. Do you That's think right. I'm? Say- I, do you think I'm not saying right. something that this, I'm supposed to say? Yeah, <laughs> you do think. that. Our guest this week is going to listen to this show and think, "Oh my god, I was on this show." Right? What the hell happened? <laughs> what, yeah. what the hell happened? He's going to wish he could. Go. Um, but, th- but I was just going to say, this is the other thing that we do on our show that you can't get on in, on on Amicus or any other legal talk show that I know, and that is um, the 
minutes of your life you can never get back lost to pointless drivel between the two of us. Yes, no one else offers that. No one else offers that, exactly. And <laughs> so we're looking for, we have a niche audience who's into that sort of thing. <laughs> oh, God. What a week. What a week, Joe. All right, any, anything else? Uh, we'd love to hear from folks. Oral argument podcast at gmail.com. That's oral argument podcast at gmail.com. Oral argument on Twitter. Follow us there. Like tweet us, us there. Facebook. Yeah, tweet us there like straight grandmother did. <laughs> right. Subscribe on iTunes. Uh, yeah, all that stuff. Rate us on iTunes. It's great stuff. And you know, you know the big thing, I, I will say this. And, um, if, if you like the show and you, and you know other humans, um, tell other humans about the show. That's actually how we get more more listeners, That's and true. We, we've we've very grown true. tremendously since the first episode. Yeah, um, which has been very gratifying. Yeah, we have several hundred listeners for each episode now. We've been downloaded over ten thousand times, eleven thousand times, or, or more at this which point. Is very cool. And um, yeah, it's 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 enough where it feels like it's worth doing, you know. Yeah. And, and the people who listen to it, at least uh, some portion of them, seem really to love the show, and that's yeah. really gratifying. So uh, agreed. Let us know what like you'd like to hear more of, or or even less of, as Straight Grandmother did, and. <laughs> Yeah. This is, these are the times I wish we had that I kind of wish we had video just to show Joe's facial reactions. If, if we ever add a, like a little image track that goes along or yeah. changes the cover, it'll be just Joe's facial reactions over the course of the show. <laughs> yeah, okay, she, she really needs a new Twitter handle. That straight grandmother. That does not doing it for me. But, but I do look. You know, it's I think it's cool. It's fine. Whatever, whatever. She's probably right. More power to we you. We should shut up. Beginning right now. Let's go on with the guest. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It, it's uh, it's a pleasure to be able to talk to you. The, you know, another day, another marriage equality ruling. I guess today is what Arizona or Alaska or maybe both or both. I think isn't it? Right. You know, I've been away from the news for three or four hours, so there could be hundreds of them. <laughs> it really is like that. It's so odd. I was just joking on someone's Facebook feed that it's uh, they come so quickly that it's like election night. Just watching the states turn over yeah, as, the, as the returns come in. Right. It's pretty much exactly like that. Well, you, you know, Michael, we, we um, uh, first of all, we're both big fans of your blog. I mean, absolutely. Been through, it's just incredible. Well, that's great. Thank you. And so, of course, we ought to plug it. That's dorfonlaw.org. <laughs> yes. D-O-R-F-O-N-L-A-W. Yeah. And in our show notes that the listeners will have I mean, either on the webpage on which they listen to this or on, um, you know, if you're listening to it in podcast app, the show notes will be right there. And there are a number, we'll link the blog, we'll link your faculty profile and, right. um, and other stuff, but also individual posts in the blog, which I think are really helpful for understanding what we want to talk about. And it won't be the first time we've linked to it, because in the discussions we've been having about the, the equality cases, we've already been linking to Dorf on Law. So it's it's a great resource, and uh, and we've already been pointing people to it accordingly. Yeah, and other uh, other issues, too. It seems like whenever well, thank, there, yeah, thanks, whenever there's an issue with courts, it seems like you're the right one. Uh, you're the right one to go to. And and in this particular case. Um, one of the things that uh, w- one of the reasons that we wanted to reach out to you in particular was um, I said something I think really wrong last week. <laughs> no one called me out on it, but um, uh, I was I was laboring under perhaps the misapprehension. But I, we wanted to get into this a little bit more deeply with you. Um, uh, like you know, one of the issues that you uh, spoke to in the blog, uh, I was under the misapprehension or uh, that when the Fourth Circuit spoke. Um, uh, last week in the Virginia case, that that um, fe- that holding about federal law was binding within the Fourth Circuit, um, and in particular was binding on state courts. And of course, you wrote in a, a series of posts about uh, why that, in fact, is is inaccurate and and wrong. Um, 
and and so I did some other research, and we've looked up, and it looks like the states are kind of all over the place as to how they see uh, the precedential value of federal courts' rulings on issues of federal law. Um, I don't know. Do you want to just kind of set it up for us, Michael? Because uh, you, you had a sure. great way of explaining it on the blog. So let me, let me give a basic overview. Uh, as a prudential matter, there are very good reasons why a state court, uh, or for that matter, state government officials who are not in the judiciary, who are in the geographical area of a particular uh, circuit, ought to follow the rulings of circuit courts. Um, but as a strict matter of binding precedent, they're not bound by federal court rulings as a matter of precedent. Um, now, what do I mean by as a matter of precedent? I, what I mean is that the way that a ruling of one court binds another court precedentially is that the court that issues the precedent has to be hierarchically superior to the court that follows the precedent. So uh, the state courts and the lower federal courts are both parts of the federal court system in some sense, um, but they have different lines of authority. So the U.S. Supreme Court sits atop the hierarchy of the federal judicial system, and its rulings are precedential for the lower federal courts and the state courts. But there's very little uh, sort of jumping between those two ladders. The um, the really the only way that you see that as a matter of uh, sort of re review by one court over another is in habeas corpus cases, and even there, we technically we don't say that a federal habeas court uh, acts uh, on appeal from a state court. Technically, it's an independent civil action and it only acts on the body of the prisoner. Although in practice, it works more or less like an appeal. Okay, so that's as a matter of precedent. Uh, but there are other ways in which federal court rulings can be binding in the state courts, uh, chiefly as a matter of preclusion. So uh, how does that work? Well, let's say a couple in a state within the uh, Fourth Circuit, but not a state where there has been a federal court ruling. Uh, South Carolina would be a good example. Let's say a couple... Um, in uh, South Carolina um, managed to get a federal court ruling that they're married now. Would the South Carolina courts have to follow that? No, not as a matter of precedent, but if they are in any litigation against the state of South Carolina, they can now cite the federal court precedent to preclude the relitigation of that issue with respect to them. And that's really the crucial piece, that is, whereas precedent applies in all cases, the whole idea of precedent is treating like cases alike, preclusion is party-specific. Uh, so it only binds those parties who were in the previous case. And so, so that's, that's the basics of it. Yeah, and so in, in the um, – just to loop back to where our discussion ended last week, uh, you know, the Virginia uh, – the Fourth Circuit came out with a ruling that Virginia's marriage ban was uh, unconstitutional. And uh, there's apparently nothing to distinguish Virginia's marriage ban from South Carolina's marriage ban. Uh, and and what, what you say is that Virginia is bound by the Fourth Circuit's ruling to the extent that the Fourth Circuit has issued a ruling uh, in which 
Virginia was a party. And uh, as a matter of courts in general, nothing to do necessarily with just federal courts, uh, Virginia is, um, is, and Virginia courts are kind of precluded from relitigating that, uh, that same issue. Um, whereas, can I, can I, can I, before you jump to South Carolina, it's actually not even that definitive with respect to Virginia. So normally if two parties litigate and one side loses, the losing side is bound with respect to that issue in all future litigation, even with respect to other parties, people who are not parties to the first action. Uh, This is what's called in the trade as non-mutual issue preclusion. And the idea is that you don't have to have both parties uh, to the prior action as long as the party that you're seeking to to bind was a party in the first case. Well, they had their opportunity to litigate the issue. They lost. Too bad. Um, That principle, the principle that you can have non-mutual issue preclusion, does not generally apply against the government. Uh, and the reason for that is that the government litigates so many cases mm. that as a general matter, you don't want to give the government the an incentive to have to appeal every case all the way up the line. Uh, and so uh, the principle just doesn't apply. So Virgin, to take your example again, uh, the, my recollection is that the original Fourth Circuit case um, involving Virginia was not a class action. Right. And therefore, it technically only bound Virginia state officials with respect to the particular named plaintiffs. Now, as I said when we started, as a prudential matter, Virginia officials are very wise to (laughs) say we're going to follow it more broadly because anybody whom they then turn down for a marriage license on the ground that, well, you weren't a party of the first action, is going to march into federal court and within a few minutes will have uh, a judgment. So uh, with respect to the government, we tend to rely on the government to uh, act in a sort of prudentially wise manner and concede in a case where there's been an adjudication by a federal appeals court, even if it's not brought as a class action. The reason I say a class action is if it is brought as a class action, then all of these other couples are parties, and so then they can use the judgment as a matter of preclusion. So why haven't these marriage equality cases been brought as class actions? I have the sense that a good percentage of them, maybe even most of them, have not been. Yeah, they have not been. That's correct. Uh, I think the that there are probably two factors at work. One is that getting class certification can be difficult sometimes. Uh, you need to, for, depending on the kind of class action, you may need to provide notice to absent uh, uh, class members. Um, you need the court's approval. Uh, there will be some inquiry into who the appropriate lawyer for the class is. And so there there are additional procedural hoops you have to jump through Mm. to bring a class action that you don't have to jump through if you're just proceeding individually. Uh, The second reason, I think, is that the lawyers in these cases understand exactly the dynamic I've just explained, which is they know that if the state loses uh, in a federal appeals court, the state's going to throw in the towel. So you don't need to pay the added costs associated, broadly understood, right. costs broadly understood. I think that's right. Yeah, it, when you're going to get the benefit anyway. That, that's correct. And I think that uh, sophisticated lawyers would understand that. It's also possible that in some of these cases you have unsophisticated lawyers who are not entirely clear on the meaning of uh, one of these judgments. This is an issue that I think has sometimes even confused uh, courts, the extent of the kind of inter-system uh, precedent and preclusion rules. 
Can I push just a little bit though? Because um, you know, I read your blog post after um, after our discussion last week, uh, and I have to say, I was surprised. I, I guess probably at some point, I, I had been aware of the um, of your description of the law, uh, maybe in federal courts or maybe when I was clerking, and and somehow I'd forgotten it and had just kind of assumed, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, that circuit court rulings were binding within the circuit on matters of federal law. And uh, and let me just, so just on the descriptive part of it, um, you know, I did some searching around a little bit to try to find um, the bits of law that kind of backed up what you had in your, in your blog post. And I did find, I found one article in Seton Hall, and I'm sure there are many, many others. This is just a bit of kind of Saturday morning Googling. And, uh, and, and at least as that article describes it, a number of states have ruled in their, as a matter of state law, that they are bound by uh, lower federal court rulings, appellate court rulings on matters of federal law. It sounds like Illinois has a very complicated one, like they feel like they're bound by federal rulings on statutes, but not on the Constitution. But interestingly, South Carolina is one that this article, at least, as of, I think, 2012, said that uh, South Carolina state courts, as a matter of state law, are bound by uh, federal courts. And then if you look at you know, for a Supreme Court pronouncement on this issue, I guess you have Justice Thomas in, in one case, I forget which one it was, in what might be dicta, uh, saying, almost, opinion, yeah, yeah. saying almost exactly what you're saying, but I don't know where, you know, if, if there's other federal law on that, I didn't see it, like, again, in, in a fit of Saturday morning Googling. So, right. um, is a description you're giving, is this like received wisdom among federal courts, federal jurisdiction folks? Is there clear law on it, or is it... Cause, I want to talk first about just that, the descriptive part, but also, you know, I have real questions about whether this makes any sense um, and and what your view on that is as well. Yeah. So let me take you back to um, Martin against Hunter's Lessee, which, uh, as uh, listeners will recall, (laughs) is a, a great case of the early republic in which the justices of Virginia uh, ruled against a claimant to certain land who was claiming under a treaty that the United States had uh, signed uh, and ratified with Great Britain. Um, and the treaty claimants appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in favor of the treaty claimants. They went back to the Virginia Supreme Court. And the Virginia Supreme Court said, uh, we're not bound by the U.S. Supreme Court. And the case goes back up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they say, yes, you are. Um, but in the course of reaching that conclusion, uh, Justice Joseph Story gives a long discussion of the federal court system in which he says that Congress could have, had it chosen to, um, given lower federal courts appellate jurisdiction over the rulings of state courts, uh, in which case they would be directly bound, even by lower court rulings. Uh, He says uh, that uh, removal jurisdiction is a kind of appellate jurisdiction, um, and so the power to remove a federal district court is a kind of appellate jurisdiction, although he acknowledges there isn't a broader appellate jurisdiction. And so as a constitutional matter, I think it is clear that Congress could, if it wanted to, have 
rulings of the federal appeals courts, or for that matter, although I think this would be very difficult to administer, federal district courts, right. uh, bind state courts on questions of federal law. To my knowledge, however, Congress has never done that. Just a story assumed Congress hadn't done it, and nothing in any of the subsequent uh, amendments to the Judiciary Act uh, seems to have changed that. Uh, and the way we know that, I think, is you have to ask, from where does the obligation to follow precedent arise in the first place? Well, for a court following its own precedent, we might think, well, that's sort of inherent in a kind common law system. But for following precedents of a higher court, the general view is it arises out of the hierarchy between the two courts. Now, that's not 100% true, right? You can think of cases where it isn't true. Think about a, a, a state law issue in federal court yep. based on the uh, diversity of citizenship, where pursuant to the Erie Doctrine, the federal court is going to follow the precedence of the state court, exactly, even though the yeah. state court doesn't get to reverse uh, the federal court. Uh, but that's because there's a federal statute that specifically commands them to do that, namely the Rules of Decision Act, as reinterpreted by Justice Brandeis and Erie. Uh, so I think the default is that if a court can't reverse another court, then that other court isn't bound, hmm. as a matter of precedent, by the rulings of the, the former court. Um, you mean as a matter of procedure? You, you mean it, so, so if the organizational structure of the courts is such that uh, one court is not um, uh, responsible to another in the sense that that other could overturn uh, uh, their rulings, then there is no uh, there's no kind of a, what you call precedent. You might call authoritative force, right? That that um, the lines of authority kind of mirror the lines of organization. Is is, uh, is your well, theory right? I, I, yes, at least absent instructions to the contrary as in the Rules of Decision Act. Well, so right. let me ask a habeas question, and I think, it, it, I think it's probably one that has two different answers depending on whether we're before or after the passage of the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act. Mm -hmm. But the question would be, so before that was passed in the mid-1990s, if, if I'm um, the South Carolina Supreme Court and I'm deciding a, a criminal case involving const federal constitutional law, would I view myself as bound either formally or or practically by a Fourth Circuit ruling on that constitutional question? Because I know that the collateral attack, if one is made on my judgment in the on this criminal question in the South Carolina Supreme Court, is going to go to a district court in South Carolina, and then it's going to get appealed to the Fourth Circuit. Right. So, so they so they could, in effect, reverse me. Right. So, so we have to get into the weeds a little bit here to answer uh, that question. Um, under uh, uh, EDPA, right, as you, you mentioned, the state court rulings can only be, I'll say, reversed uh, on habeas um, in uh, circumstances in which the state court uh, violated clearly established federal law, right? It's not enough that they were merely wrong. They had to have violated clearly established uh, uh, federal law. And EDPA specifies that only a uh, the U.S. Supreme Court can clearly establish right. federal law for purposes 
uh, of that that ruling. Now, so pre even, but pre EDPA when that thing wasn't there, how do you, did, did courts think about it as as we're bound by it, or, or did they just or did they think even if we're not formally bound by it as a practical matter, we need to do it? Yeah. But, but even pre EDPA, there was TV Lane. Right, which had more or less the same standard as EDPA, with the exception of mixed questions of law and fact. Mm. And so there too, it's only clearly established uh, law. But that rent leaves open the question of under the pre-EDPA law, could a federal appeals court decision clearly establish the law for purposes of? Uh, deciding whether a state court was in violation of of that law. Um, And my recollection is that that issue had not been resolved. We're only talking about, I think, a seven-year period between Teague v. Lane in 1989 and EDPA in 1996, Mm. uh, during during which that was the operative principle. So let's go back even before that. So under (laughs) the pre-1989 period, pre-Teague v. Lane, when federal courts... Uh, we're still uh, giving roughly de novo consideration to the um, the uh, federal issues that arose in um, in the litigation by the the federal habeas petitioners. Um, in that period, yes, the South Carolina uh, courts would have been very wise uh, to follow Fourth Circuit precedent. Uh, because even if they weren't technically bound by it as a formal matter, uh, they ran the risk of having the uh, prisoners released. And it, it's a little bit of a hybrid case. I mean, and again, I don't know if you would resist my kind of formulation of, and I'll just call it your theory for right now, even though it is like, you know, the theory that we, that the federal courts at least uh, seem to follow, that the line of precedent or a line of authority or line of bindingness, however you want to characterize it, follows a kind of organizational binding, uh, an organizational um, structure where that organizational structure is one of, you know, the um, having the power to reverse. Um, and, and perhaps there could be other statutes that also provide for, for bindingness at the federal, at the federal level. Um, and, yeah, well- and Joe points out, just to make a quick point, Joe points out, you know, habeas is one where there was this kind of weird kind of uh, um, ability to reverse, right? Uncertain, and maybe in the pre-Teague days, it was it was even clearer. But of course, in other cases, there's always the possibility, or at least in some cases, there's a possibility of removal, right? Which is a kind of weird line between federal and state courts that you might think would provide a kind of practical bindingness because after all if if the state doesn't follow federal law there's always the possibility of a kind of forum shopping through because all of these are federal issues that's what we're talking about at least now right there's always the possibility of forum shopping but anyway go ahead right so let me let me make a bold uh defense of the conventional wisdom in response to each of those uh potential counterexamples. so with respect to habeas i would say that habeas is sort of the exception that uh proves the rule in that if you look at the sort of high points for habeas review, uh, a case like uh, Fay against Noya um, or Brown against Allen, the sort of the, the heady days of the pre-Warren and Warren courts when the federal courts really were doing something like independent uh, determination of issues of federal law. The champions of that kind of review, and there was no bolder champion than Justice Brennan, 
were always at pains to point out that this wasn't an appeal and that the state courts were not bound to follow the rulings of the federal courts, but that habeas acted on the body of the prisoner. Now, this was always, I believe, something of a legal fiction. Right. But it does strike me that the need to resort to that legal fiction was a recognition that the default setting in our system is one in which lower federal courts do not bind state courts. So that's, that's with respect to habeas. With respect to removal, uh, so first of all, it's not true that you can always get to federal court. Um, if the federal issue arises by way of defense, then the Motley Rule is going to prevent uh, removal. Um, if the uh, federal issue is, um, you know, a, a sort of secondary to a, uh, a state law issue, there may not be subjure, and you may be able to defeat diversity by including non-diverse uh, parties. So, so there's that. Yeah. But beyond that, that we we um, there, you know, Story's point in Martin against Hunter's Lessee was that so far as Article Three's division of uh, jurisdiction into original and appellate jurisdiction, removal jurisdiction is a kind of appellate jurisdiction for Article Three purposes. But for these purposes, I think it's not a kind of appellate jurisdiction because removal is invariably pre-judgment rather than post-judgment. And so it's not going to set a kind of uh, precedent hierarchically. So that, that's my defense of the conventional wisdom. But let me say that, um, again, number one, it's only a default principle. And number two, it's only a default principle given the sort of structure of our federal courts and state courts and the Madisonian Compromise, I wouldn't say it's a default principle universally. So I think that the obligation of uh, nation-state sovereigns to follow international law does not depend on there being any kind of appellate jurisdiction from national supreme courts to, you know, the ICJ or some other kind of hmm. um, supranational uh, judicial body. Yeah. Well, maybe this would be a good time to move then from the description to the wisdom point and, um, and, and whether, you know, wh wh whatever the formal state of bindingness, what kind of the right description is. And I, I remember when I was clerking, my judge gave a talk at NYU and, um, uh, as part of uh, a, a, a lecture um, that they had, I think, endowed there. And, and his, his point was, and this is uh, Calabresi, and his point was uh, was trying to make federalism work better, <laughs> frankly, by allowing state courts to do what they were really good at and federal courts to do kind of what they were good at. And uh, so I don't know, if he, as you probably know, uh, he is a, a big fan of certification um, yep. uh, to states on state court issues and thinks that federal courts should defer much more to state courts on state court issues, um, is not nearly as big a fan of EDPA-type principles, which require courts to defer to even wrong state court judgments on matters of uh, federal law. And and this seems to me, you know, to follow in the same vein, that that um, this idea that, you know, I can, there are so many ways to, to approach this, but, but the idea that you, you get a better system by allowing state courts to take a different view than the federal courts uh, of, you know, of that, of the circuit in which the states find themselves. Um, I'm, I'm having trouble seeing why that produces a better state of affairs. Uh, I can understand just general appeals to 
capital O, capital F, our federalism. Um, but in terms of kind of a, a sensible, pragmatic system that focuses each institution on what it's best at, um, this approach seems to me to be, if historically grounded, not pragmatically grounded. Um, but am I missing something about like the virtues of diversity within a circuit and between states and federal courts on in uh, matters like this one, in matters like Virginia, uh, the Virginia uh, same-sex marriage case and the South Carolina courts? Um, so, no. I mean, I, first of all, I don't think the stakes here are very high. I think that as a general matter, you don't get very many uh, conflicts between circuit courts and the state courts in those circuits on questions of federal law. And when you do get them, they don't persist that long because if they, if they're really serious, that's, you know, the sort of friction that, that is a, uh, certiorari criterion. Um, uh, and I think you're also right in, I will say, uh, somewhat disparagingly referring to our federalism <laughs> to see, see the virtues that are claimed for um, state autonomy in these matters as more symbolic than tangible, right? That somehow right. it is an offense to the dignity of the states or some such, you know, hard to uh, pin down concept if the state courts must, you know, uh, toe the line with respect to what the, the federal courts have said. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think the the best argument for that kind of a view, uh, that is to say your, your view, uh, would be found in uh, Henry Friendly's famous article in Praise of Erie and the New Federal Common Law. Now, Friendly was not making this claim uh, with respect to the uh, federal appeals courts uh, binding the state courts, but it was in the same general spirit that uh, you're saying Judge Calabresi was making, uh, which is that, you know, the federal courts should defer to states on issues of state law, just as the state courts should defer to federal courts, happened to mean the Supreme Court, but he might have equally meant uh, uh, federal appeals courts. Um, I will say that there is one disanalogy here that that strikes me as potentially salient uh and that is that when a federal court certifies a question to a state court the federal court knows for sure what the state court thinks it's not exactly certifying the case for appeal by the state court but you're getting an answer right right that's you're doing it because you think state law is uncertain in some way um, I take it the proposal that we're sort of debating here as if, you know, Congress is going to pass a law <laughs> would be not to have state court rulings be or state court judgments be appealable to the lower federal courts, but to have, you know, the Virginia or South Carolina Supreme Court have to follow the Fourth Circuit precedent in the way that federal courts follow state court precedents in Erie cases, even though they could be wrong, right? They follow what, you know, their best judgment as to what it is, right. is, and sometimes that'll be obvious, right? So here, right, the South Carolina Supreme Court can't say, well, the Fourth Circuit said there's a right to same-sex marriage, but actually they, they didn't really mean marriage, right? That would, that would be silly. Right. But there'll be a lot of cases where 
um, it's not clear what it would mean exactly to follow the federal circuit precedent. And then the state courts would have to make it uh, an independent judgment. Which, of course, um, is appealable to the United States Supreme Court if it's on a matter of federal that's law. That's right, that- although, you know, the most cases won't end up there. Of course, of course. But if it's important and, uh, and, and you know, arguably uh, cases that, um, uh, at least as of current practice, federal courts tend to certify to state courts are important in that, you know, intangible way that maybe a state law, you know, they're, they're, they're the analogy, you know, they're, they're the hard cases in state law in the same ways that the cases that the Supreme Court might take are the hard cases in federal law. Um, even if their importance is not quite in the same, you know, vein. You mentioned earlier, Christian, that the the that some states appear to say, um, "We, the Supreme Court of X state, um, think we are bound." By, yeah, South Carolina apparently is one by Circuit Court of Appeals quite, uh, decisions on on matters of federal law. Right. Yeah. Can uh, I? Can I? Go ahead, go ahead on that. I mean, I, I want to object to that on two grounds, but I want to hear your. Well, I'm just, first. I'm just curious to. I'm to actually just have a question about it, which is, um, is first of all, it, is the court there stating a proposition of state law or federal law? And if it's stating a proposition of federal law, it's not in a position to authoritatively state it, is it? And if it's stating a proposition of state law, then I'm really confused. <laughs> It, you know, well, is a matter of state court law that a state court thinks it's bound by a federal well, court's articulation of federal law? I mean, this I'm getting a little bit well, before, wrapped up in my own before, word spaghetti yeah. here. No, before Michael delivers what I'm sure will be a hammer blow of objection, <laughs> uh, let me just say that uh, um, I don't, I wouldn't, I can't, um, you know, at least abstractly see anything wrong with a state court, even if it is not bound by federal courts as a matter of federal law, saying, you know what? we are going to take as authoritative the rulings of federal courts. And I don't okay, see anything so wrong let me with tell you, Yeah, go ahead. Let me tell you what's wrong with it. So, so first <laughs> of all, I take it they mean that um, both as a ceiling as well as a floor. So suppose I have some case in the uh, Virginia court or South Carolina, South Carolina courts, uh, and I have a federal claim, and the Fourth Circuit has rejected it, and now the South Carolina court, if they're going to follow the Fourth Circuit, it's going to reject my federal claim. Well, I, I, I have a claim, right? My, my claim is I have a, I, the, the law is in South Carolina is whatever the federal law is, but that's whatever the federal law is, not whatever somebody else says the federal law is. Um, so uh, if, if they're making it, you know, it, it, this is not like one of these situations where a state has a constitution that has a provision that's parallel to the federal constitution, and they decide, you know what, we're going to interpret ours in lockstep, right? That's there. They're saying we're going to follow uh, federal law on a question of state law. We, we where the we don't have to give you anything else under this state law if we don't want to. Um, yeah. So I, I don't think it's I don't think it's that. Well, well the, it is, just, let me just let me break in because they, just to fill in exactly what they say, this is uh, South Carolina versus Ford Motor Company is the is the case that this uh, particular author cited, and we'll link this up in the show notes. And apparently, they 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 just said flat out there the South Carolina Supreme Court that in cases involving federal constitutional challenges to the application of state statutes, um, federal court authorities, and this is the quote, are controlling of the meaning and effect of the federal constitution. And yeah, that's that's just wrong. If they mean lower federal, but, they but mean can federal South Carolina be wrong about that though? I mean, the state no, they be, can't because be you're saying it's a question of federal law. 
Exactly. Right. Whether the South Carolina court is bound by the Fourth Circuit on the meaning of federal law is not a question of South Carolina law. It is a question of federal law. <laughs> but but can't I mean, this is the uh, don't forget your second point, because I know I interrupted you. But uh, okay. isn't it possible, though, that I mean, I don't see what's to stop the sovereign state of South Carolina from determining that they are bound by the rulings of the Supreme Court of Kentucky? Uh, nothing on on questions of state law. On questions of federal law, the supremacy clause says the judges in each state shall be bound thereby. Mean by and thereby by they mean actual federal law, not somebody else's guess as to what federal law is. Uh, ex- exact. Oh, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Okay, so I think I've I, I've misunderstood. So you're saying that they have because of the supremacy clause, kind of. Uh, it's, this is very clever. So uh, because of the supremacy clause, they are obligated not to feel bound by the Fourth Circuit, but instead must make their uh, best guess as to the actual state of federal law, um, perhaps as interpolated among the rulings of the Supreme Court. Is that Do I have that about right? Exactly. Okay. Yes. So it really is a mirror image of Erie. They're making an Erie-like guess about the Supreme Court of the United States instead of a federal court making an, e- an actual Erie guess about a Supreme Court of a state. Well, no, there I, I disagree with that too. Um, that is to say, <laughs> I, uh, but for different reasons. Uh, so, my view, um, quite apart from our discussion up until this point, is that in uh, eerie cases, I acknowledge the courts have said the job of the federal court is to quote predict what the state high court would do if state law is uncertain. I don't think it's the job of the lower courts, whether they're lower federal courts or state courts, to predict or, as you say, guess what the Supreme Court would do. I think it's their job to say what the law is, which may require the exercise of some independent judgment about the best meaning of the precedents. So the example I give in an article, which I articulated this idea about 20 years ago, is um, suppose that uh, tomorrow, um, you know, justices Scalia, Alito, and Roberts all say that they're retiring to, you know, go form a a super-duper law firm. Um, And now the question is, is Citizens United binding on the lower courts? Well, we know that of the remaining justices on the court, there's no longer a majority for the principles of Citizens United. And we know that if Obama gets to appoint successors, he's going to appoint people who don't don't agree with Citizens United, or at least that's very likely. Uh, And so if you had to guess or predict what the Supreme Court would do, you'd say, ah, it would get rid of Citizens United. So I, as a lower court judge, should get rid of it. I think your obligation is to follow that law um, as articulated by the Supreme Court uh, until it's overruled. Uh, the Supreme Court has actually said that uh, in another case, not not in the context of anything as uh, important as Citizens United. But I think that's true both with respect to cases that overrule past cases and more generally. Yeah, I, I, I you have a recent, um, as in the last few days, blog post about this, and I took a look at that in the earlier article, and I uh, it's interesting because this has come up before on this podcast, and I couldn't. I could not agree more that the, the the lower court's obligation is to look at you know look at past decisions and then make the best possible judgment that it can according to its and and here you know this is you know my own idea but not at all original to me that that you know what the law does is it gives zones of political authority to different kinds of institutions including courts and that lower court judges 
appellate judges, judges throughout the system, have to make political judgments in 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 many cases, and uh, and they should exercise that authority, and and that's a in a way a kind of a public good because it provides information to the Supreme Court, uh, a menu of options that it can choose from. Uh, I couldn't have said it better myself. Well, I well, I doubt that. I bet you could have. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, there's so so you 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 both um, uh, correctly uh, using Christian's metaphor before put the hammer blow to my uh, my quip about it's a mirror image of Erie. Um, so so I suppose it. Uh, I'll take the point that it's not. It's prediction is not the right way to talk about it. Um, in the in this context, although the courts have been told that in Erie, that is precisely the way they are supposed to do it. I hope I at least have that much right. That, uh, that can, can you just hold the rest of the thought for one second? Because I, I think I, I can uh, drive the nail in just a little bit farther. <laughs> do it, do it. The reason why a federal court predicts in an Erie case rather than simply follows the law is precisely because the litigants in the federal court case do not have access by way of appeal or otherwise to the state court, right? So you you can't get there and therefore you predict. Whereas if you are hierarchically within the chain of command so that you could get to the highest court in the system, then you don't need to predict. Okay. Yeah. So, and, and I take that point and it's an excellent theoretical um, explanation for the point. Um, and in addition, it does seem to me that when a lower court judge is answering a question about federal law in an area where there isn't a Supreme Court case directly on point, that there is a sense in which when they're giving their best answer, part of what they're doing is thinking through the existing materials and maybe imagining what it would be like to have the ultimate federal law expositor, the Supreme Court, actually tell us what the answer is. Like, it doesn't seem to me that's an improper thing for a judge to be thinking. Like, yes, I'm trying to give you my best judgment, and my best judgment is in part based on what I think after reading all these authorities and thinking about how they all fit together, or don't. Uh, yeah, this- I agree with that. So, so another way to think about that is that it's a little bit like the distinction you see in statutory interpretation or constitutional interpretation between intentionalism and textualism or other non-subjective accounts of interpretation, in, in that um, if you're asking, well, what would a, uh, objectively, what would a reasonable speaker of these words intend by them? Well, part of your evidence is going to be what actual people actually intended by them. And so the, the, the enterprises are not going to look that different. I agree with that. Let's maybe we, maybe this would be a fruitful exercise. Let's let's imagine that the three of us are um, the the only justices on the South Carolina Supreme Court, and kind of roll back the clock on um, the uh, the action the action brought by the state attorney general to try to shut down the issuance of marriage licenses in uh, Charleston. I think by the probate judge. Um, of course, we have. A legal decision to make, a pragmatic decision to make, a political decision to make. I assume that we are, you know, we can all see the writing on the wall about where this issue is headed, and yet we have to kind of figure out, given that knowledge, uh, what to do. Um, I'm still, still kicking around in my brain is this like this idea that I hadn't thought of before that the supremacy clause may actually require us to ignore the rulings of federal courts like the Fourth Circuit, um, which is still kind of amazing to me, and I haven't really digested it completely, but. Um, but I don't necessarily disagree with it. So, and what? How do we? Um, uh, if if you were the chief justice, Michael, wh- how would you 
encourage us to start thinking about about this case. I did see the blog post that you had about um, what South Carolina might be up to in that case and how they were thinking about it. But uh, how would you encourage us to think about it? Okay, so the first thing is that, you know, in the um, not merely unlikely event that I am a justice, much less the chief justice of the South Carolina Supreme Court, <laughs> right? Uh, one of the things I would do in that case is to think about the merits, right? And my view on the merits is, well, there's a constitutional right to same-sex marriage. Right. Uh, so regardless of what's happening in the federal district court in South Carolina, regardless of what's happening in the Fourth Circuit, regardless even of what the Supreme Court is likely to do, I think these plaintiffs are entitled to win on the merits. Um, and so for that reason, I'm not going to enjoin the... Uh, equivalent of clerks from giving uh, marriage licenses. Yeah, on, now, on, on, on that point, just to, just to break in, uh, did um, I, this is a week ago, so my memory could be totally faulty, but it seems to me they cited, or maybe it was the attorney general who cited, um, like some federal. Um, what's the right word when they? Uh, uh, see, my memory is really Baker, shot. Baker, you talking about Baker against Nelson? You know that that was the that was the original decision, which is kind of non precedential, which might provide an answer. Now, I'm th- I'm thinking of the uh, uh, um, uh, you know the the Colorado River. What, what are these? Um, not Colorado abstention. River. Yeah, abstent- yeah. Didn't they cite federal abs- like a case involving Younger a federal or abstention? Like that? Yeah, didn't they cite a federal abstention doctrine? Not not as binding, but as analogous. Like, hey, there's this other action going on in a parallel court, and maybe we should hold off until. Maybe I'm totally uh, wrong about that. Whether they cited uh, that, they, I thought it was weird. Did, they did indeed. No, that you're correct. They cited a. Uh, an abstention doctrine. It couldn't possibly have been younger because under younger, the federal court gives deference to the state court proceedings, well, even if the state court proceedings are filed after the federal court proceedings. I, I, well, I hope um, Professor Marty Reddish isn't listening because I'm bringing nothing but shame on him as I <laughs> as I mangle federal courts, which I took from him many years ago. But uh, my apologies. Anyway, I broke in. You had a second point, Michael. Okay, right. So, right. So, so first, I, I want to rule on the on the merits that there is a right to same sex marriage. Uh, but, but the the sort of further question is, um, you know, are they entitled to a stay? Uh, even, so, even if I, I think there's a right to same sex marriage, right, I'm not going to say, okay, all these people can start getting married now um, because it's going to be hard to then roll that back if it turns out I get reversed. So, I do think at that point, I ha- I I notice what the Supreme U.S. Supreme Court has just done, namely to deny cert in all these cases and say, well, if the Supreme Court is willing to say that we're going to let all these people get married, um, even at the risk of it getting rolled back, they must think it's not going to get rolled back. And so I don't think it's going to get rolled back. And so I'm going to, you know, I, I, I'm not going to uh, enjoin the issuance of these marriage licenses. Uh, and I, I guess I think the federal district court litigation is not the main force for, is not the main, the main issue for me. And, and in that sense, the South Carolina Supreme Court got it wrong as a matter of law and, and pragmatism for you. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, if the, if the South Carolina Supreme Supreme Court were convinced that actually the U S Supreme Court is very likely to take one of these cases soon and find that there is no right to same sex marriage, then I think they ought to have uh, enjoined the issuance of marriage licenses and, and said, regardless of what the federal district court does. Now, obviously, that's not that's only going to be uh, binding with respect to uh, 
people who aren't parties in the federal district court litigation. And because it's not a class action, there aren't many parties bound by that. That's correct. That's right. So as to most South Carolina residents, the Supreme Court of South Carolina would have its way, at least in the short term. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, try to um, zoom out a little bit and uh, while we've got you on the line, ask you uh, uh, the same question that a lot of people have been asking and have been answering on blogs and in media. Um, Just what do you think about the um uh the basically so you know one theory is that these you know one theory that has emerged from Roe and you're familiar with this argument I'm sure is that um it would be better to let very controversial heartfelt moral issues be worked out um by the people rather than by judges and certainly by federal judges uh and and that has been one of the justifications um, that has been cited for the Supreme Court kind of staying out for a while and letting the country kind of catch up. Now, of course, it doesn't work at all because a lot of what's going on here is federal court litigation. It's just happening circuit by circuit and seriatim rather than, than, than all at once. And so the delay part is working, but not the kind of diversity of, of the body politic kind of explanation what, what but you know is there some other kind of wisdom at work here is this just a matter of um um different political um uh, different political agendas all kind of for whatever reason converging on doing nothing uh do you think this is a wise way for the supreme court uh, to proceed on this issue do, do you have thoughts about this i know you do because i've read the read some of your blog posts but i wonder if you have any just overall thoughts about the federal court approach to this issue. Yeah, so um, I don't know if you or your readers have had a chance to to look at it yet. So in my my verdict column, uh, which was published today, I compare what the court did. Uh, hard to believe, just you know, a week and a half ago, <laughs> forever uh, ago, yeah, right, with the per curiam denials in desegregation cases following brown right so after brown um right the for about a decade and a half the lower federal courts are issuing desegregation rulings in all sorts of cases swimming pools uh buses uh public uh uh parks etc um and these are pretty clearly authorized by brown although not obviously right because a lot of what the court says in Brown is uh, unique to public education. Right. And one could have thought it would be possible to make a, a respectable argument that while Brown um, uh, says that separate but equal doesn't apply in public education, it might apply elsewhere. Um, and the lower courts know it doesn't. And the Supreme Court summarily affirms, summarily affirms, summarily affirms without ever uh, granting review. Uh, and I say that you could, you could see the, the current situation as broadly similar, with two very important caveats. One is that those cases were summary affirmances rather than cert denials. That was in the era pre-1988 when the court's uh, mandatory appellate jurisdiction was much broader. Uh, And second, and more importantly, Brown pretty clearly uh, indicated that while a distinction could be drawn, it wouldn't be drawn, right? That Brown was a much clearer signal that you couldn't have segregation anywhere than Windsor was a signal that there's definitely a right to same-sex marriage. Uh, So that there's a kind of similarity. But then what I end up, what I'm going to do in a blog post following up on this next week uh, 
is to say that what, what I think this tells us is that Windsor becomes kind of retroactively a much more important case than it was at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, that it may turn out that Windsor is the case that established a right to same-sex marriage, even though nobody but Justice Scalia really thought so at the time. Right. Um, now, that doesn't get at any of the sort of questions you were asking about with <laughs> respect to, you know, what's going on. Yeah. Right. A and uh, the short answer is none of us really knows. I will say one thing, which is the Supreme Court is a they, not an it. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, yeah. And so what's going on for Justice Ginsburg may not be the same thing as for Justice Kennedy, may not be the same thing for Chief Justice Roberts, not the same thing for Justice Scalia. Right? Each of them has a somewhat different idea about his or her role in this, what the court what to do, what the court is likely to do if they take a case. And so the, the game theory of this would be very complicated, even if we knew what was going on. And of course we don't. Right. And I, you know, the post that you already have up uh, kind of plays through what some of these individual incentives uh, might be. And, uh, and I think that's exactly right. Um, uh, Justice Ginsburg has spoken very directly about kind of her thinking and how, to take on these cases over time. Um, and I just don't see uh, Justice Roberts as having any appetite on an issue in which the kind of the emerging demographics are so clear uh, of aligning this court with an anti-gay uh, marriage opinion. I have no idea, though, what the, you know, I don't want to put anybody on the couch here, So, but I don't know what uh, Scalia or Alito, I mean, I, would they even want to write that blistering dissent on this issue at this point? Um, um, again, I have the sense that for all of them, cases like this are not enjoyable. Yeah. That is to say, uh, at least when they're going to be divided. If they're going to be unanimous, then they don't care. Right. Uh, but that none of them really enjoys divisive uh, social issues um, because it makes them, you know, sort of aware, sort of very much aware of uh, their divisions. Now, they end up having these, you know, having sort of heated disagreements anyway um, over voting rights, over. Uh, immigration to to a lesser extent over some economic issues, you know, all sorts of things. Right there's there are ideological cases every term, but but the temperature goes up on you know same sex marriage, abortion, sometimes the death penalty, mm -hmm. right? Things that that we think of as having uh, a large cultural significance, and. I think they kind of want to have a peaceful term each term. So that, that counts for something also. I don't think it should. I mean, I think it's ridiculous, right, that the, something as important as, as, you know, how we get same-sex marriage and when and all of that is going to depend on uh, the taste of nine people for avoiding some on-the-job conflict. <laughs> right, right, right. right. But that, but you know, that's the price of 
discretionary control over their docket. You've never that makes me think too about. Um, I think it was another post you wrote about getting rid of terms, or was that a? Um, mm-hmm. and, yeah. But but what's interesting is that um, uh, one explanation. And this is probably wrong, but one explanation for why all of the high wattage cases come down on the last day is uh, that you know they know they have to decide these things. Um, they're going to have to argue heatedly about them, and they issue them at the last minute, and then they get out of town and cool down. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I you know, look, I know from my experience uh, um, as a law clerk that several of the justices would much rather be working on a tax case or an ERISA preemption case than on, you know, a divisive social issue. Right. And I, I'm troubled by this Windsor retroactively becoming the marriage case be, in the sense that um, – I mean, in the in can, can that really endure uh, if, and I think this might even be a hypo in in one of your posts or or something similar to it. But but if that like let's say there isn't a Supreme Court decision in the next few years about uh, the Fourteenth Amendment's uh, marriage equality requirement, uh, and you know, uh, uh, ten years from now, uh, a case gets teed up because under the laws of intestate succession, a person takes under uh, from some property from a dead person, um, but if they weren't married, then they that person doesn't take. And now some state court judge is like, well, marriage? There's no marriage here. It's a same-sex couple. The hell with that. Uh, and I'm not bound by the Circuit Court of Appeals, and I'm not even in that circuit, so everyone just buzz off, right? I mean, the chaos that would ensue um, seems to me deeply troubling. Yeah, I, I think there's not a chance of that happening. I just think that I mean that's the demographic, that's the the you know the the long term shift. Um, I think it's over. Yeah, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, it would be like it's like worrying about you know today. You know, someone says, "Hey, you know, it turns out that the Thirteenth <laughs> Amendment wasn't properly ratified." Right. <laughs> right. right. It, it yeah. doesn't matter. Yeah, this was like a hypo we came up with at the end of the last show with Anthony Christ about. Uh, you know, if someone tried to reassert segregation in the schools and act as if Brown was not binding and then winding its way up the state court, it just seems un, un, unlikely. And I mean, do you think that they're going to, do you think the court's going to be pressed to take a case uh, this term, Michael? Do you think they'll, like, they'll wait until, you know, there are going to be no shortage of opportunities to um, to take a case and, and end this. And, and if they're trying to time it for the end of the term or or who knows when they're what they're trying to do with it, are they going to take one in like in February or something like that to to deal with it? So, look, I mean, I've been wrong so many times before and I've tried to predict anything that I, I, I'm not going to make a prediction. What I will say is that um, if they were going to take a case without a circuit conflict, they would have done it, I think. Right yeah, now, yeah. I don't see why they would bother. You know, why not just like wait it out? Yeah, I guess. I, except for the things that Joe mentions. I mean, do 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 you think the court is at all responsive? So, if these things begin to add up, but there's some like recalcitrant state attorneys and things are going on in a state court, and it's, do you think they just wait through all that? And and it, despite, do you think they're unmoved by any criticism of, you know, hey guys, this is your job? To no, use- I think they, I think they wait until either a federal appeals court or a state supreme court rules against same sex marriage. Yeah. But again, you know, I've been wrong plenty of times before. But, but let me let me give you another example, right? Suppose you know there, there has never been a U.S. Supreme Court ruling holding that property qualifications for voting are unconstitutional. 
Yeah. Poll taxes held on constitution, but not property qualifications. Why? Well, because the states got rid of their property qualifications in the 19th century before there was, you know, an opportunity for the courts to rule on it. Right? Does that mean that we were robbed of a of a chance? No. In the in the extremely unlikely event that you know some uh, property qualification arises, and usually these arise in these sort of oddball cases, like you know it's a, it's not clearly a full um, political divi- uh, entity; it's like a part a quasi private entity, right? Right. Um, yet they would just say it, and it you know it would be uncontroversial in the same way that right if you know. 50 years from now, or even, you know, what will be the equivalent 10 years from now, some wacko judge says, you know what, there never was a right to same-sex marriage, uh, and that somehow is, you know, manages to get, uh, doesn't get reversed all the way up, then they'll just take the case and they'll, you know, summarily reverse it and they'll cite Windsor and uh, people who really know will say, well, that doesn't really decide the question, but no one will care. <laughs> well, do you... Can you think of, uh, I've been thinking about it, but not, you know, not being a, a scholar in this particular area. I, I don't have like the, the, uh, the mental store of, of examples to draw from. But is there another equivalent example of, of the Supreme Court making a landmark non-decision that establishes a sea change like this? Making a just a cert, a certain aisle decision, yeah, or, or, or yeah, I was going to say a land. Uh, you know, the phrase I use is a landmark non-decision. You know, and and, and maybe it's a cert denial, maybe it's a stay, and nothing ever happens. Or but it, it, but kind of acting in a way that uh, you know where, where you can say there's some action, but where it essentially is a non-decision. Um, I, I just I, I certainly never studied anything anything like this in law school, where where we inferred some basic rights from Supreme Court you know inactivity or or um or or certain denials or you know i i don't know if there's anything equivalent i was wondering if you knew uh, uh the closest thing i can think of is stewart v laird right so um as you'll recall right before the defeated adams federalist party leaves town in the, the winter of 1801 they amend the Judiciary Act, creating a whole bunch of new judgeships and do a bunch of similar other things. They, they then pack the courts with federal judges. Uh, this is the same law that creates a bunch of um, uh, justices of the peace of the District of Columbia, one of whom is William Marbury. Mm-hmm. Um, that and, one I remember. <laughs> right. Uh, and then they leave town. Jefferson arrives. He's furious. He doesn't, deliver, he doesn't have Madison deliver Marbury's commission. We all know about that story. The more important story is that a year later, they enact the Judiciary Act of 1802, which um, repeals the creation of a bunch of these new judgeships. And with it, uh, there go the judges. And the question is, can Congress eliminate an Article Three judge? position while there's a judge filling it. Um, and there's a pretty good argument that uh, the life, tenure, and salary protection of Article 3 means, no, of course they can't. Uh, the Supreme Court never decides that question. What they decide instead, in a case called Stewart v. Laird, is that the circuit assignments of the of the justices to uh, riding circuit, which was part of what was reinstated in the Judiciary Act of 1802, was constitutional, and therefore the whole act was constitutional. And so they tacitly acquiesced in this sort of attack on judicial 
independence. Um, and it establishes, I think, at least for a time, may no longer be good law, but nothing is overruled, but at least establishes a very important proposition, namely that Congress uh, isn't bound that much by life tenure and salary protection, at least with respect to creating and uncreating judgeships. Uh, and they do it by not deciding the issue. The reason they don't decide the issue is that they're terrified they're all going to be impeached <laughs> if they decide it against Jefferson. Right. Um, Fascinating. But, but, you know, but that's a, that's a decision from over 200 years ago. Um, I, I can't think of one that that's more much more recent. Yeah, and that's a, it's just hard to imagine that, you know, like everything is unprecedented and unprecedented until it happens, you know, and um, it, it, I, I've had a hard time like just believing that Windsor will be the case and this will just kind of peter out and no, and uh, there will never be. It just seems inconceivable to me, but then... You know, everything does until it happens. Well, the, the reason it's inconceivable to me is because I think that we, we still have a few circuits, maybe it's three, fifth, sixth, and eighth. Um, yeah. Uh, w maybe the 11th hasn't decided either. No, now the 11th I, hasn't either. Yeah. yeah. So we've got a few circuits. Uh, there, there are some of the more conservative circuits. Uh, there's that case pending before the panel that includes Judge Sutton. I, I think we're going to get a circuit split before too long. And and I think, Michael, you've said, and I agree, that once that happens, then the thing has really been teed up in a way that I don't think they can avoid it. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think they hope to avoid it, but, you know, I don't think they will. Because there will be some, even if no circuit, um, because maybe maybe there will be a panel, but it gets in-banked, and, and it's, who knows. But will all 50 states follow suit if they each take up their prerogative to ignore the... Mm. Uh, views of the circuits that's you know i don't know but but there's an increasing sense that like n who wants to write plessy versus ferguson like nobody wants to write that case and you know even uh yeah. even older people who may not be sympathetic you know i think of older judges who may not be sympathetic with same-sex marriage they've got you know grandkids and it's and and we have i think having you're underestimating the power of anti-gay Animus, no, I, my friend. Look, I, look, I, I wouldn't do that. Uh, you know, I, I probably am, but, um, uh, but I also think there's something. You know, when we have a trouble appreciating the speed with which this issue is moved, I think we, what we're not appreciating is that everyone alive today uh, has, if not direct personal experience, the the knowledge of the historical experience with the civil rights movement, right? And they, we know what happened. You know, we know who the good guys and bad guys were there, right? And, um, sure. Yeah. I, I just think nobody wants to be, no one wants to write Plessy versus Ferguson and, you know, and, and everyone knows how this issue is going to end, uh, knowing how the issue is going to end, who wants to be the bad guy? Uh, so anyway, that's, that's not to say I, I, you know, if I had to bet money, of course I would bet money that there'll be some state out of the 50 where there will be a majority standing firm in in favor of, you know, what they call traditional marriage right. or but, some circuit court. But I can also see I can also see how over time there are just whatever stomach there was to write that opinion becomes you know increasingly um what's the word for a declining stomach <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah I think I think that's exactly the medical term for that, Is that right? <laughs> right oh plunging well, gut 
Yeah, this this has really been great, Michael. Thanks for. I mean, we we try to stay accountable to our listeners, and <laughs> I said something which was clearly wrong last time, and so this was great to have you come and uh, and and clear clear up our listeners, but um, selfishly to clear me up on this because it's the issue is so much more fascinating than I had appreciated. So thank you for well, that. Well, thank you. You know, I I uh, in addition to con law, I teach federal courts, uh, so this is these are issues that are not of great general interest, but for people like me who find federal courts interesting, uh, they're fascinating. Yeah, federal court, it's such a puzzle, isn't it? I mean, it's uh, that, that whole subject is just a bunch of puzzles that fall out yeah. of just the very act of trying to maintain two sovereign systems that interact. And, um, and I really need to go back and take that class again. Uh, my, my, I'm so, so rusty and my intuitions on it are so bad. Well, Fortunately, we've got our next guest. Should we tell people who our guest is next week? Yeah, we can, but we'll, I just, I'm not, I think though that what you point out, and, and I don't know if Michael, you'll be amenable to this, but I think this should be the first part of our 120 part series with Michael Dorff learning federal jurisdiction all over again. <laughs> I'm all for it. <laughs> uh, you know, my, uh, my dean has been asking me to develop a MOOC, so, uh, I think I might have to do that instead. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you decide to do something online where you, we could be your, I, we could be your model students and, uh, All right, that would be great. And, and I, I promise for you, Michael, I would do the reading. Okay. <laughs> Listen, thank you so much. Thanks and, again. Uh, hey, en- enjoy your pleasure. weekend. Thank you guys. Right, really appreciate it.